out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It's day 30. We have days to call in. We're going to just keep tunneling through the days until it's over. So I am bringing you another reading. This is The Trial of Julian Assange's Story of Persecution by Nils Melzer. We are at Chapter 4. To be read into its entirety today. Welcome and thank you for joining. Just invite some listeners. And... See here. Most everybody's offline, but not everybody. So... Chapter 4, My Investigation Begins. Visit to HMP Belmarsh. By the time I began in my investigation, I was keenly aware of the enormous political dimension of this case. There was a real danger that people would try to manipulate me and abuse my mandate. I therefore had to remain cautious and wary of any attempts to influence me, no matter where they came from. In order to avoid any suspicion of a conflict, of interest, I had to keep my distance both from the authorities involved and from Julian Assange's supporters. I needed to collect as many reliable facts as possible to triangulate my own observations with the assessments made by other experts, lawyers, and witnesses, as well as with the positions taken by the authorities. My visit to Julian Assange's London Belmarsh High Security Prison had been approved by the British Ministry of Justice for 9 May 2019. I wanted to personally examine Assange's health, prison conditions, and treatment so that I could draw clear conclusions based on reliable information. What impact, if any, had almost seven years of confinement in the Ecuadorian embassy had on Assange's physical health? What had been the psychological effects of being trapped for so long and exposed to a progressively hostile environment of isolation, reprisals, and the constant danger of extradition? From the perspective of my mandate, everything ultimately boiled down to a single question. Was there credible evidence that Julian Assange was, had been, or might be exposed to an act or risk of torture or ill Ill treatment? Whether currently in British, British custody, previously at the Ecuadorian embassy, or in the event of his extradition to the United States. Whatever my findings, at least one party in this strongly politicized case would probably try to question my motives and undermine my credibility. It was therefore particularly important for me to be able to not rely, to rely not only on my personal judgment and experience, but also on the expertise of independent media, or sorry, sorry, medical professionals. I therefore asked two medical doctors specialized in the examination of torture victims to accompany me on my visit. I had worked with both of them before during numerous prison visits and was confident that I could rely on their professional and personal integrity. Professor Duarte Nuno Vieira was Dean and Professor of Forensic Medicine at the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Coimbra in Portugal and chairman of numerous professional associations and, until a few years ago, president of the International Association of Forensic Sciences, world-class forensics expert. 
who had seen it all, from the mass graves of the Yugoslav War to the bodies recovered from the wreck of the MH17, the Malaysian airliner shot down by Russian-built missile over eastern Ukraine in 2014. Dr. Pau Salas was a psychiatrist at La Paz University Hospital in Madrid, an internationally recognized specialist and author in the field of psychological torture, and former directive director for a rehabilitation center for torture victims at the Mental Health and Human Rights Resource Center in Madrid. Both Professor Vieira and Dr. Perez Salas were world-renowned experts in identifying, examining, and documenting that that was a phone call possible traces of physical and psychological torture or, or other ill treatment and were regularly called upon as expert witnesses by national and international courts and institutions. Neither of them would ever think of using the Assange case for their own profiling, and both would strictly adhere to medical confidentiality and leave any public statements following the prison visit to me as a mandate holder. This was important because the purpose of my mandate was not, of course, to disclose confidential medical information to the public, but to use our medical diagnosis as a basis for my legal assessment as to whether the prohibition of torture and ill treatment had been violated. In line with customary practice, the medical report would not be made available to the authorities, nor to Assange or his legal team, but would be kept under lock and key at the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and used exclusively as the medical basis for my official findings. On the one hand, Assange needed to be sure that the medical information he entrusted with us would not be used against him. On the other, the confidentiality of our diagnosis also had to apply to Assange himself as it would not have been acceptable to give him preferential treatment in this investigation. Given that my official conclusions would not be legally binding for either party or for the United Nations, but that they had the evidentiary strength of an expert opinion. The non-disclosure of the underlying medical diagnosis remained compatible with the principles of due process. In order to ensure maximum objectivity and credibility, I had instructed both doctors to conduct their medical examination in line with the Istanbul Protocol, a UN document enshrining the internationally recognized legal standards and medical guidelines guidelines on how to effectively investigate and document allegations of torture and ill treatment. I think he's referring to the evaluation of the Armenian genocide by the Turks. On the morning of May 9th, we took a black cab from our hotel in central London to Thamesmead, about 10 miles east of Tower Bridge and Big Ben. Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh is a 30-year-old high-security prison with a capacity of about 900 inmates. In the media, Belmarsh is frequently referred to as Britain's Guantanamo Bay, not only because it houses quite a few terrorism suspects, but also because of the strict security regime. Assange was brought to Belmarsh on 11th of April of 2019, immediately after his arrest and conviction by the British authorities. At the time of our visit, that was barely a month ago, we stepped out of the cab. I had already seen photographs of the place, but its dimensions remained imposing. It was a rectangular compound enclosed by high walls, which looked a bit like medieval fortress. 
The prison's reception was located behind the main portal, built of clinker bricks. I reported to the receptionist presenting my official UN identification and the credentials provided by the Ministry of Justice. Everywhere in the world, whenever I conduct an official prison visit, in my capacity as a UN Special Rapporteur, my team and I are immediately welcomed by the Governor and their key staff. We are smoothly escorted through the security or barri security barrier, sorry, usually without any search, and we are not asked to hand over our documents or cell phones, as we may need these later, the latter, to photographically register physical traces of torture and evidence of inadequate material conditions of detention. Also, in cases of emergency, we have to be able to communicate with the outside world, from the provincial prisons in the Ukraine to the gigantic Silviri complex in Turkey and the closed psychiatric ward in Argentina. With a few regrettable exceptions, prison management tend to go out of their way to demonstrate their respect for the United Nations. Not so in Belmarsh. The reception staff had obviously not received any particular instructions with a view to the appropriate handling of an official visit from the United Nations. After a remarkably unhurried verification of our papers, we were sent back to the visitor center a few minutes to few minutes walk away where we were asked to deposit our bags, computers, phones, keys, and valuables in lockers. Once back at the reception desk, we were asked to move to the opposite corner of the entrance hall where other visitors, presumably family members and lawyers, were already queuing to get through the first of several security gates. We got in line. My two doctors were growing visibly impatient but I urge them to remain calm. Don't be provoked, my friends. I'm sure there's more to come. Given the well-known British predilection for formal etiquette, diplomatic protocol, and indirect messaging, this kind of lukewarm welcome clearly was not an accidental oversight on the part of the authorities. From the first moment, I was made to understand that, in the United Kingdom, special rapporteurs cannot expect special treatment. We were not treated as an institutional partner, but as a potential security risk. I took this for what it was, a form of communication, but also a demonstration of power. My visit was being tolerated, nothing more. Not that this upset me. Particularly during my field deployments with the Red Cross, I had developed a thick skin playing the waiting game at barriers, fences, gates, and checkpoints. So many times and in so many places I had been blocked for endless hours in dusty heat, pouring rain and freezing cold waiting to finally get through to the other side where our humanitarian action was needed. Whether I was facing indifferent soldiers, nervous rebels, or frustrated border guards, never did I allow myself to react emotionally, for the goodwill of my inter interlocutors was fragile and short-lived, and sometimes quite literally a question of life and death. Against this background, the unenthusiastic reception at Belmark could Belmarsh could not deter me, but it certainly contributed to my rapidly declining perception of Britain as a reliable partner in the area of human rights. In the wars of Kosovo and Afghanistan, my dialogue with British operational forces had always been constructive, efficient, and marked by mutual respect. Here in London, the United Kingdom showed me a very different face, an attitude of demonstrative indifference with a hint of royal condescension.
The motivation for all of this was not personal, of course, but purely political. The interests pursued by governments are always political, and their priority is never the promotion of human rights. If and when human rights are put to the political agenda, it almost always serves the ulterior motives such as enhancing national reputation, denigrating other states, obtaining financial aid packages, or justifying military interventions. So I was not disconcerted when the security check at Belmarsh dragged on. The security officers went about their business with painstaking meticulousness and did everything in their power to ensure that the UN Special Rapporteur and his medical team would not be smuggling drugs, weapons, or other prohibited items into the prison. Together with other visitors, we inched forward. From the queue at the reception, we squeezed into densely packed first lock and then a few eternal minutes later through metal detectors in the, into the inner area. Here, the actual security check took place. Removal of shoes, jackets, and watches, and then an individual parade in our socks through even more powerful metal detectors. And, after thorough inspection of the doctor's clinical thermometer, stethoscope, and ballpoint pen, and tick-tock, tick off on our list of, sorry, tick off on our list of pre-authorized items, a second passage through the x-ray machine for all of us and of our shoes. Only then were we admitted. The security officers themselves had no bad intentions, for sure. They had simply not been given any special instructions. As a result, they did their job with the usual thoroughness and any protest or lack of cooperation on our part would have immediately triggered a forceful response and probably would have meant the end of my visit. This is how soft harassment works. I like that term. I'm going to use it. I'm going to remember it. Soft harassment. We endured the, pro the procedure stoically, which seemed to be slightly more taxing for my Iberian colleagues than for my Swiss-Swedish temperament. Behind the security check, we were welcomed by a female officer whose open and friendly demeanor made a pleasant contrast with the government's demonstrative indifference. She explained that she had been tasked with accompanying us throughout the visit, and she escorted us to the Belmarsh's health care unit. This had been one of my requests. I did not want to meet Assange in the usual visitors' quarters. A conversation or a medical examination with other prisoners and their relatives present was out of the question. Moreover, such rooms are almost always covered by CCTV and offer no confidentiality whatsoever. We passed through the corridors and barred doors that were immediately locked behind us. The room we were finally assigned to was not very different from the examination room in an ordinary doctor's surgery white walls, a desk with a computer and a few chairs, and an examination couch and a door with a window made of thick glass and covered with adjustable blinds. As a matter of routine, I quickly checked the room for visible cameras and microphones, including under the desk and chairs. I did not find anything, of course, but I was not reassured. I knew that modern surveillance technology had lately reached a level of sophistication that made its detection virtually impossible. Above the door, a clock marked every second with an audible click. Minutes passed, we waited. 
A total of four hours had been agreed for our personal meetings with Assange from 10 a.m. to 12, from 2 to 4 p.m. But it was already well past 10.30 a.m. when the door finally opened and Assange was brought in. I immediately knew that this was the moment to put my foot down. As long as our exposure to soft harassment did not interfere with the agreed purpose and modalities of my visit, the only reaction I would show was unshakable patience. But the duration of our confidential meetings with Assange was non-negotiable. I formally protested with our liaison officer and insisted that the session would have to be extended to compensate for our waiting time. While my demand was being processed and ultimately approved through their institutional hierarchy, the clock kept ticking. Now, next I had to insist that our liaison officer leave the room so that we could interview Assange in confidence. Although the Although interviews without witnesses had long been part of the standard modalities applicable to all detention visits carried out by UN experts worldwide, and despite express prior notification, this had not, it seemed, been contemplated so that permission had once more to be obtained through the institutional hierarchy. As we waited, the clock kept ticking louder and louder. <clears throat> Finally, for good measure, the special permission procedure had to be repeated a third time because, although authorized to leave the examination room, our liaison officer had been instructed to visually monitor our meeting with Assange through the window in the door. On this point, resistance got more tenacious, but I categorically insisted on medical confidentiality and finally achieved agreement that the blinds would remain closed for the entire duration of our meetings and that our liaison officer could not enter the room without first knocking on the door. Then, at last, we were alone. First Impressions When Assange entered, he immediately sought eye contact. He looked tense and nervous as if he were unsure what to expect from external visitors. But I soon realized that I didn't need to explain my function to him. He was well aware of the UN's human rights mechanisms at least since the WGAD had concluded in December 2015 that his continued confinement at the embassy amounted to a form of arbitrary de deprivation of liberty. Assange wore a blue sweatshirt, gray track pants, and sneakers. Clean-shaven, with his white hair neatly trimmed, he bore no resemblance to the man who had been dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy a few weeks earlier. Then Assange had looked unkempt, pale, and much older with long, matted hair and a messy beard. The picture had gone around the world. What the public had not been told, however, was that Assange's squalid appearance had been deliberately staged by the Ecuadorian authorities to make him look repulsive and bizarre in the media. According to Assange, three months before his arrest, his shaving kit had been taken away by the embassy's security personnel, one of the countless small reprisals with which they obstructed his daily struggle for a dignified existence. Seemingly a minor detail, it fit perfectly with the narrative assiduously spread by the Ecuadorian government about Assange being an ungrateful, self-indulgent parasite who skateboarded and played soccer inside the embassy, mistreated his cat, and smeared feces on the walls. But the images and video clips released to the public told a different story. They mainly showed Assange's meetings with medical doctors, lawyers, and other visitors, as well as completely innocuous scenes from his private life, all recorded in secret and published without his authorization. 
The few visitors Assange was still allowed to receive during his last year at the embassy also reported systematic surveillance, abusive restrictions and harassment, and even tampering with their cell phones and devices which had been deposited with security personnel. Assange's expulsion without any form of due process had been planned well in advance, and it was clear that the general public was more likely to accept this step without sympathy or protest if, his, if during his arrest Assange looked as filthy and dehumanized as he had portrayed in the media. I intended to use the first hour of my bilateral conversation with Assange and then hand over to Professor Vieira for the forensic examination. As always in my interviews with individual, <laughs> individual prisoners, the purpose of the first few minutes was to build trust and to ask standard questions about well-being, conditions of a detention, and contacts with family and lawyers, and any other primary concerns. This normally allows me to quickly get a reliable overview of the situation and its potential challenges. Depending on the complexity of an individual case, working through a list of basic questions usually takes around 10 to 20 minutes. It takes incomparably longer, however, when the prisoner tries to take the lead himself and ask completely different questions. Assange pulled a piece of paper out of his pocket on which he had scribbled several names. Suddenly I was being interviewed. Had I been in contact with his lawyer yet? Had I met that UN official? Every time I tried to steer the conversation back on course, Assange's mind was already elsewhere and he asked me the next question. It seemed as if he couldn't really process what I was saying. Again, he interrupted, this time to engage him in a weighty discussion about what he saw as the waning influence of human rights mechanisms. His statements were clear and convincing, but at the same time he seemed erratic and almost rushed. As soon as he had expressed a thought, he instantly opened up a new drawer in his mind, as it were, and pulled out another topic. I have been visiting prisoners for 20 years in a wide variety of contexts. Prisons are a difficult environment for open conversations and many inmates are intimidated, distrustful, and traumatized. Over time I have learned to also pay attention to nonverbal signals, body language, mood shifts, everything that is perceptible without being explicitly articulated. When talking to Julian Assange, I was immediately reminded of conversations with other political prisoners who had been isolated for a long time. All of them had thought about their own situation for many, many hours, often too many. But because of their isolation, they were unable to process and express more than a fraction of their thoughts and emotions with other people. As a result, they lived in an increasingly self-contained, overstimulated inner world with thoughts and emotions so slowly spinning out of control. It is a well-known phenomenon of prolonged solitary confinement. At some point, this leads to a permanent state of stress and apprehension. The accumulated tension can no longer be relieved, and a vicious cycle of insomnia, anxiety, and depression begins, often to the point of total exhaustion and with potentially severe neurological and cardiovascular consequences. The corrosive effect of, of isolation can also be seen in a prisoner's posture, facial expression, and gestures. They appear fragile, overwhelmed, and rushed. Their ability to absorb and process information is diminished. 
they seem to have lost their grip internally because they have been deliberately deprived of all certainties. The psychological destabilization caused by isolation and arbitrariness is routinely employed by torturers in order to break the victim's resistance. My impression of Assange was that of a highly intelligent, mentally extremely resilient man who was desperately trying to retain some measure of control over his own fate, even though it was obvious that he was no longer in charge. This too is a typical reaction of people exposed to a hostile and arbitrary environment for a prolonged period. Uh, hey Blotty, we're right in the middle of a reading here. I'll just take your call briefly, if you have a brief something to say. Hello, bloody? Julian, Julian Assange's wife with uh, Jordan Peterson. Oh, it's incredible. St Stella, it's incredible. Stella Assange? I mean, I we didn't get the first part, bloody. Your mic cut in late, uh, so, so begin at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, Jordan Peterson interviewed her on his program. It's incredible the things that this man has been enduring all in the name of freedom of speech, really. They've invented all sorts of charges later only to drop them. They've mm -hmm. taken them to countries like Egypt to torture them because they can't do it legally in, in uh, Sweden or the United States or other European and uh, Western countries. So it's a lot of things that are questioned. That alone, the shit that they've been doing to Assange is worthy of him being let go without any charges ever, ever. This man has is he's not right in the head anymore. They've been messing with his head. Forget about gaslighting. They've gone into his head. His torturers. They've used people that uh, almost basically as he's a terrorist. No different than a terrorist from any country that has terrorized, destroyed, blown up. They're treating him exactly like that when that has not even been the case. It, it's it's horrible his treatment. Hey, Blotty, would you help me for a little bit? Because I'm right in the middle of this this uh, this chapter work. It would be yeah. really helpful if you would drop a link in the comments section in the chat um, to to right. indicate that, that Jordan Peterson interview. You, you got I'd it. like to resume the reading, though, if you don't mind. Okay. So, <clears throat> so in reality, we know they are completely defenseless, and they know it. Nevertheless, somehow, they still cling to the idea of having that last ace up their sleeve, which would turn the tide in their favor. But during my conversation with Assange, I also perceived a trait of his that had been mentioned by many others before in more or less flattering terms depending on their perspective. While some had praised him for his extreme ability to concentrate, others had complained of his indifference towards the legitimate concerns of others. My own impression is that this divergence of views reflects two slightly distorted sides of the same coin. Although I had explained the purpose of our interview to Assange, it was difficult to keep the conversation on track, and I repeatedly had to perform the rhetorical U-turns to make sure I obtained the information I needed. However, I did not experience Assange as a self-indulgent or arrogant at all. He was simply too focused on his own thoughts to pay attention to what I had in mind unless and until I clearly verbalized it. A symptom congruent with his medical diagnosis of Asperger's, a mild form of autism. Had Assange been a ruthless narcissist, as some insist, he would hardly have been prepared to endure so much personal humiliation, isolation, and suffering for the sake of truth and justice for others. Had his quest been his own self-aggrandizement, 
then his continued confrontation with the world's most powerful government certainly had not produced the desired results. Assange was too intelligent not to understand the risks of its own reputation and well-being when he decided to expose the dirty secrets of the most powerful. He knew the price for his actions and he decided to pay it, not for personal benefit, but because he believed it needed to be done. The two doctors had followed our conversation from the background so they could get a first impression and avoid repeating the same basic questions during their examination. After one hour, I thanked Assange, explained the rest of my visit, and handed over to Professor Vieira for the first part of the medical examination. Together with Dr. Perez-Sales, I went to the chief nurse's office to have a copy of Assange's medical records printed out with Assange's consent and to get the prison doctor's opinion on various aspects of his health. However, not a single prison doctor was said to be present all day. In a high-security prison with almost 1,000 inmates, at the time of an officially announced visit by a UN expert and his medical team, this no longer seemed like a mere coincidence, more like another variation of soft harassment. After some unexpected technical difficulties with the printer, which we met with our default attitude, of unshakable patients, we at least retrieved a copy of Assange's medical records, another non-negotiable element of my, of my visit. According to these, the prison doctors had already taken the most urgent dental and other measures to treat the most pressing physical ailments that had arisen during Assange's asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy. Nevertheless, he was not in good health. As our physical examination showed, he had lost weight since his arrest, and the constant anxiety and stress of the past months and years had caused neurological and cognitive impairments that were already objectively measurable. In the run-up to my visit, I had announced that I would be available to respond to questions from the press during a lunch break, but when I arrived at the designated meeting place in front of the prison, only one journalist was waiting. He worked for Ruptly a news agency affiliated with Russia's state-run RT television network. I delivered a short statement into his video camera, thanking the British Ministry of Justice for its cooperation and explaining the procedure and purpose for my stay in London. Please remark upon this. This was state-controlled media. They wanted to funnel this as a Russian propaganda narrative. That's my sidebar editorial of why this happened the way it happened. So back to the text. It would include not only today's prison visit to Assange, but also a meeting to the following day with representatives of the British authorities and the other interlocutors. As expressly agreed with the British government, I announced that the results of my investigation would first be transmitted to the British authorities and then also shared with the public. Given the prominence of the Assange case and the public announcement of my visit, I had expected strong interest from the British mainstream media, including the BBC, Sky News, The Guardian, and The Times. Instead, there was only a lone reporter from Rupley. I was more surprised than disappointed. On the one hand, the low turnout was not inconvenient. I was keen to avoid burdening my investigation and mediation efforts with sensational headlines. On the other hand, I had certainly not expected total radio silence from the mainstream media. I later learned that on the same day, the Swedish prosecution authority had publicly announced that in four days' time it would, be, it would publicly announce 
whether the criminal investigation against Assange for rape that had been closed two years earlier was to be reopened. In an announcement, so to speak, it was temporal concurrence with my visit to Assange's a coincidence or a well-planned device to tie up media attention? Or were there perhaps entirely different reasons for the lack of media interest in my visit? I was still far from understanding the true dimensions of this case. For the moment, I was just relieved that public attention to my investigation of this highly politicized case had been postponed. A few minutes' walk from Belmarsh on Battery Road, we found a Domino's Pizza. We placed our orders and sat down on the only two benches that could fit in the small storefront. Outside, people went about their business under a gray, drizzly sky. For most of them, no doubt, just another ordinary day of British spring weather. It felt strange to be waiting for food. Coke in hand, discussing impressions and next steps in whispered innuendos. There were only a few hundred yards between Belmarsh and Domino's, and yet the prison walls separated two fundamentally different worlds. So, I've gone on for 33 minutes. Maybe I should stop the reading there because we would resume at Please Save My Life. Lottie, would you like to say a few words? Bob? No, go, go ahead. Please continue. Okay, so we'll we'll resume the reading then. Okay. Please save my life. In the afternoon, we returned to the prison reception early, well aware that we would have to go through entire security procedure all over again. While Dr. Perez Salas conducted the psychiatric examination, Professor Vieira and I, with Assange's consent, visited his cell and other relevant parts of the prison. The same officer who had been assigned to us in the morning led us through the corridors and willingly answered all of our questions. At no point did we experience or observe any cynicism or hostility on the part of the prison staff, whether towards us or towards Assange or the other inmates. They had the challenging task of managing the security and daily routine of nearly 1,000 inmates, and as far as we could tell, they were all doing their jobs with a calm, friendly, and professional attitude. As I knew too well, this could not be taken for granted. In many places around the world, prison staff had made no secrets of what they thought of us visiting the enemy, the traitors, the terrorists, or whatever unflattering term that they had reserved for the people in their custody. And the relationship between the guards and the inmates was often marked by a palpable atmosphere of fear and violence. Not so here. Assange may have been considered a public enemy by the governments of many countries, but not by the guards in Belmarsh. If anything, I had the impression that the prison staff were anxious to protect him from the bad influence of other prisoners, some of whom had committed very serious crimes. As a nonviolent political prisoner, Assange should never have been brought to Belmarsh. We visited the library, the gym, the shower rooms, and the courtyard for outdoor walks. Like in most high-security prisons, the individual cell wings at Belmarsh each spread over two floors, but were strictly separated from the other wings, so as to facilitate de-escalation and re restoration of control in the event of a riot. For individual inmates, the daily routine depends largely, largely on their assigned security regime. In the United Kingdom, 
the spectrum ranges from a category A, a maximum security, to category D, open prison. At the time of our visit, Assange was assigned to category B, high security. We learned about the daily routine from the guards on duty and were able to cross-check the information with other sources. The inmates on Assange's wing worked for three to four hours per day, one group in the morning and the other group in the afternoon. In the other half of the day, the cell doors were left open for three to four hours of socialization time, during which inmates could move freely around the corridors of their wing but were not allowed to enter each other's cells. Yard time depended on weather, but was usually 45 to 60 minutes per day. Cell doors remained closed for the rest of the day and during the night. All meals were taken inside the cells, mostly single cells and a few double cells. Assange's single cell was number 37 in wing 2. When the heavy steel door was opened, I immediately saw the cell had been designed and equipped in conformity with the United Nations standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners or the Nelson Mandela rules, as they have been called since their revision in 2015. Nothing fancy, of course, about six square meters of floor space, well over two meters high and a reasonably sized window, a plastic chair, a sink, a toilet, a closet, a simple bed, and bedding. From the smell and the look, it was clear that the cell had been freshly painted, possibly in anticipation of my visit, with water-resistant laundry room eggshell. There is a short video clip circulating on the internet internet which must have been secretly recorded a few days before my visit and which shows Assange and another inmate pre preparing his cell for the paint job. On the lino floor under the bed and on every conceivable shelf lay books, handwritten notes, and countless letters from supporters around the world that evidently had been delivered to Assange by the prison authorities. Well, I thought, given that the internal mail distribution system seemed to work quite efficiently, there really was no excuse for Assange not receiving his legal correspondence and case documents as he has complained. Our liaison officer explained that Assange had not been yet integrated into the usual prison routine. One month after his arrest, he was still in the induction phase, which served to gradually integrate in inmates into the system. Initially, detainees typically spent about 22 hours alone in their cells, interrupted only by meals, showers, and yard time, as well as any visits, medical appointments, or court hearings, daily time for work and social interaction with other inmates, as well as access to the library and gym, would be added only later. In the case of Assange, she said, the prison management had to be particularly careful because Sweden had publicly portrayed him as a rape suspect for years. This image had become deeply entrenched in the minds of the prisoners, including a number of violent criminals whose behavior was difficult to predict. During the preparation for my visit, I had formally requested that a meeting with prisoner governor be scheduled for the end of the day. It emerged, however, that he had exceptionally gone home already at 4 p.m. that day, so I ended up with his deputy. That's irregular. 
So, yet another opportunity for the government to officially demonstrate how little importance it had attached to my visit, although paradoxically quite the opposite was really the case. In Britain, only a government feeling extremely uncomfortable about its role in this case would go out of its way to disregard just about every convention of diplomatic protocol and mutual respect, simply to downplay the political weight of my official visit. The deputy director himself, of course, behaved impeccably provided me with all requested information and duly took note of my concerns. I cautioned that after a full month it was time to end the restrictions of the induction period and, and to allow Assange access to the library, gym, and daily work. Most importantly, I made it clear that Assange urgently needed access to an independent psychiatrist he could trust and that under the current security regime he was unable to adequately prepare for the upcoming court hearings. Unlike the vast majority of other inmates, he was simultaneously involved in complex legal proceedings in multiple jurisdictions. To prepare his defense, Assange clearly needed to be able to review and write documents on a computer, even without internet access, and to hold regular and intensive exchanges with his legal teams in their respective countries. Under the current detention regime in Belmarsh, this requirement could simply could not be guaranteed in a manner consistent with human rights law. The deputy director took note, but then explained that it was the judge who had ordered Assange's detention in Belmarsh, and that the prison administration could not influence this decision in any way. The judge, of course, would subsequently argue that the responsibility for Assange's well-being falls on the prison administration alone and that the judiciary has no authority whatsoever to interfere with its, its decisions. Bureaucratic evasion of responsibility, if applied by the executive and the judiciary in mutual buck-passing, can be an effective method of undermining the rule of law. Thus, this, is an imp this important day came to an end. Not many words were exchanged in our black cab back to central London. I sat in the back of the car and stared through the raindrops on the right rear window into the void. In my mind, I kept replaying the moment of saying goodbye to Assange at the end of the afternoon. We had shaken hands, I had wished him well, and was about to leave with the doctors already at the door. Then suddenly Assange's grip on my hand tightened and he held me back. What he wanted to say was visibly difficult for him. I hate to say this, he began. Then he hesitated for an eternal instant until the words finally spilled out, Please save my life. During our conversation, he had made it absolutely clear that he would not be extradited to the United States alive. In view of what awaited him there, this was a rational decision, he had said. During a cell search two days before our visit, prison staff had confiscated a razor blade hidden by Assange just in case. I knew he was serious, and he knew, of course, that his fate was not in my hands. As so often at the end of intense visits, I did the only humanely possible thing I could do in this situation. I gave him a silent hug from one person to another. Then I heard myself reply from afar, I'll do my best. Officials, Lawyers, and Witnesses in the afternoon of the following day, I met with British authorities. Professor Vieira was due to testify in court elsewhere and had already left London, but Dr. Perez Salas had accompanied me to the headquarters of the Home Office in Marsham Street. 
during official visits by UN special rapporteurs opening meetings with the authorities of the host state normally take place at the ministerial level while the discussion of technical issues is subsequently delegated to the working level the people actually running the administration not so in London at least not in the Assange case from the outset I was confronted with administrative officials who could brief me on the applicable domestic normative institutional and procedural framework but even with the best of intentions we're not in a position to discuss the political decisions that would have been necessary to resolve the Assange case again I was being signaled that the British government tolerated my investigation as a matter of window dressing but was not willing to seriously question its own approach with a minister I could have addressed simply uh, completely different questions Home Secretary Sajid Javid for instance would personally sign off on the US extradition request for Assange only a few weeks later and Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt was responsible for British relations with the United States Ecuador and Sweden but also with the United Nations with them I could have discussed the political and human rights implications of the Assange case and explored face-saving compromise solutions that would have been acceptable to all parties but that was obviously not what what the British government had in mind instead they preferred to keep our dialogue locked into a mirror maze of bureaucratic technicalities a proven diplomatic tactic for feigning a solutions oriented attitude while preventing any meaningful progress so I ended up having a technical discussion with administrative officials from the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice on how to best ensure the most expedient transition for Assange to an acceptable prison routine that would allow him regular social contact and most importantly adequate access to his lawyers and case documents I also emphasized that based on our medical examinations I was seriously concerned about Assange's health and was of the opinion that he urgently needed access to an independent psychiatrist he could trust but my primary concern was the American extradition request for almost a decade the US Department of Justice had been preparing its case against Assange behind closed doors since 2010 there had been reports about secret hearings of a grand jury a long-standing US judicial procedure extremely vulnerable to prosecutorial manipulation in which a group of laypersons decides on whether to bring charges against an individual without judicial guidance based on solely on evidence provided by the prosecutor and under complete exclusion of both the public and the suspect himself with more than 95 percent of prosecutions in the United States never being tried in court but resolved through plea bargaining the grand jury's original purpose of protecting the public from governmental overreach has unfortunately been increasingly corrupted transforming this once honorable institution into a convenient tool for shielding abuse of executive and prosecutorial power from judicial or public oversight in the case of Assange the grand jury finally issued its first indictment on 6 March of 2018 but it was kept secret sealed until his arrest on 11th April 2019 already the option optics of that indictment were not credible how likely was it really that the US Department of Justice would investigate against Assange for nine long years only to come up with a single charge of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion an offense 
for which the maximum sentence was a paltry five years. A maximum sentence, moreover, which could only be applied in particularly serious cases and would have to be significantly reduced in the case of Assange, as he was accused of a mere unsuccessful attempt causing no damage whatsoever. To any objective observer, it was obvious that the U.S. authorities had not investigated and surveilled Assange for almost a decade, and certainly would not conduct a full-blown extradition trial in the United Kingdom to simply convict him of a petty offense, punishable with a prison sentence of a few weeks at best. A much more convincing explanation for the stunted indictment was that the U.S. wanted to officially avoid, they wanted to avoid officially charging Assange with espionage for at least the time being. Espionage being the classic example of a political offense, such as any such charge would have blocked Assange's extradition under Article 4 of the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty of 2003. Aha! Aha! Which expressly prohibits extraditions for political offenses. The computer intrusion charge was sufficient to satisfy the requirement of dual criminality, according to which no person can be extradited unless the alleged offense constitutes a crime in both countries. Furthermore, by restricting the charges to computer crimes, the U.S. aimed to avoid a discussion about the implications of Assange's indictment for press freedom. The official narrative being pushed here was that the attempting that attempting to decode the password hash of a government computer, even if unsuccessful, was not a journalistic activity protected by the U.S. Constitution, thus deflecting public attention from the dirty state secrets exposed by WikiLeaks. These were, of course, the real reasons for Assange's aggressive persecution. There was one provision of the extradition treaty which I was particularly concerned about, According to the so-called specialty principle, the United States would only be able to prosecute Assange for offenses for which his extradition had been requested and granted. On the face of it, this principle appeared to suggest that once extradited, Assange could only be prosecuted for that single charge of computer intrusion as set out in the indictment underlying the U.S. extradition request. But, as virtually always in the law, there is a loophole. Thus, Article 18 provides that the extradited person may also be detained, tried, or punished for a differently not denominated offense, so long as it is based on the same facts as the offense on which the extradition was granted. As I pointed out to my British interlocutors, the practical relevance of this provision could hardly be overstated. On this basis, even after Assange's extradition from the United Kingdom, the United States could freely add a new and different charge to its indictment against him, so long as they were supported by the facts described in the extradition request. This also explained why the description of facts in the extradition request was unusually broad and clearly exceeded what was required for a single count of computer intrusion. Of course, the addition of new charges would also open the door to more severe sanctions, possibly even the death penalty, or a life sentence without parole. Neither would be compatible with British human rights obligations. My interlocutors were visibly taken aback. They had not expected me to ask for their assessment of the human rights risks arising from the fine print of the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty. In a moment of carelessness, the official in charge of extradition policy exchanged a meaningful glance 
with his colleague responsible for international legal assistance. Then he cleared his throat and responded, his eyes firmly locked on the documents in front of him. Well, yes, I suppose that is something we'll have to look at, and when such a situation should arise. Sensing that I was going to insist on the point, his colleague quickly intervened. I, I, think, we should, I think we should now let the British judiciary do their work. Her decisive tone and facial expression made clear that this was the non-negotiable British proposal for shared public position, and that this was the end of our conversation. In the morning of that same day, I had visited the offices of Dowdy Street Chambers, a renowned law firm specializing in human rights, to meet with some of Assange's lawyers, leading present representatives of WikiLeaks, and a whole range of other witnesses. Among them was Stella Morris, who was introduced to me as a member of Assange's legal team. At the time, the world was still unaware that she and Assange were secretly engaged, and had even become parents twice during his stay at the embassy. I also met with Fidel Narvaez, the formal consul general at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and Guillaume Long, who had been Long, so had, who had been Ecuador's foreign minister until the election of President Lenin Moreno in 2017. So my two doctors had not yet finalized their medical report, and I knew that I would need time to triangulate and incorporate their findings with the evidence obtained from these witnesses, from the authorities and from other sources into consolidated conclusions that I felt comfortable presenting to the government and to the public. Nevertheless, we had, of course, already exchanged views and formed a preliminary opinion, which had allowed us to compile a list of open questions to be further investigated. We all agreed that the physical and psychological symptoms shown by Assange constituted a normal response to prolonged isolation, stress, and anxiety. These symptoms included, most notably, early manifestations of neurological and cognitive impairment, restlessness and volatility, desperate attempts to suppress feelings of powerlessness, severe depression, and underlying the rest, a permanent fear of being extradited to the United States and exposed to lifelong dehumanization in supermax prison. Assange suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and the con continuation and escalation of his cumulative stressors would very likely trigger a rapid deterioration of his health, and in the worst case, a nervous breakdown, cardiac arrest, or even suicide. Without any doubt, Assange needed access to a trusted psychiatrist who was independent from the authorities. This is the second time he said this. Ultimately, however, my task as the special rapporteur on torture was not to provide the authorities with a medical diagnosis, but to determine whether the diagnosed medical symptoms had been caused by torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, or whether other causes remain conceivable, such as pre-existing medical conditions or traumatic experiences not amounting to human rights violations. Psychological Torture My conclusion that Assange had been exposed to psychological torture had been repeatedly criticized, albeit not, albeit not yet by anyone possessing the expertise and experience required to do so with a certain level of credibility. As far as I'm aware of all these critics, 
Not one has personally examined Assange. None has any practical experience in identifying and documenting traces of torture or jurisdictional expertise regarding contemporary forms of torture. And next to no one has bothered to actually read the official UN documents detailing my findings. Nevertheless, all kinds of self-appointed experts, from journalists to politicians, from functionaries to seasoned law professors, filled, felt called upon to publicly attack my official conclusions as absurd, nonsense, and wrong, or as trivialization of the concept of torture. In the absence of the necessary professional competence, trumpeting such harsh criticism appears to be rather bold and in many cases outright embarrassing. While it says very little about the objectivity of my findings, it speaks volumes to the largely unconscious emotional strongholds of the predominant mindset against Assange. I say this without assigning blame or ridicule. After all, in December 2018, I had reacted just as hastily and judgmentally to Assange's first request for intervention. I had been deceived by the same relentless and perfidious smear campaign against him, which is still ongoing today, and aims to deflect public attention away from what this case is really about. At the time, I would have fiercely rejected any suggestion that I had been deceived, but that is, of course, the whole point of deception. For once the deceived become aware of their deception, they are no longer deceived. So, in fact, my own cavalier attitude towards Assange was living proof that the deception was working. Even I, in my role as the officially appointed UN expert, on the prohibition of torture, somehow knew immediately that this case did not involve any real form of ill treatment, at least as long as I managed to avoid looking at the facts. In order to bring some objectivity back into this discussion, we shall therefore take a quick look at the basic legal reasoning underlying my finding of psychological torture. The related factual evidence will only be summarized here as it will be discussed at length in the following chapters. The term torture as defined in the UN Convention Against Torture essentially refers to the intentional infliction of severe physical or mental pain or suffering in order to achieve a specific purpose. It is most commonly associated with the extraction or suppression of testimony or confessions, but can also involve other forms of coercion, intimidation, punishment or discrimination. Ultimately, torture always intends to break the will of the targeted person and to subjugate them to the will of the torturer. Importantly, the targeted persons whose will the torturer intends to break need not only need not be only the immediate victims themselves, but can also be their husbands, wives, parents, children, their friends or associates, or even the general public. Also, torture is always directed against the powerless individuals who in the circumstances cannot do anything to resist or escape infliction of pain or suffering. The alternative term, other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, ill treatment for short, is used when the infliction of pain or suffering does not pursue a lawful purpose or is unnecessary or disproportionate for the achievement of such a purpose but lacks at least one of those characteristics of torture. Namely, intentionality, purposefulness, the intensity of the resulting suffering, or the powerlessness of the victim. Excuse me. 
Examples of ill treatment would include the negligent exposure of prisons to inhumane conditions of detention without purposely exploiting the resulting suffering. The disproportionate use of tear gas or physical violence against peaceful protesters and humiliating and intimidating or discriminatory statements or acts that cannot be justified but in circumstances do not cause pain or suffering of sufficient intensity to achieve the purposes of torture. This is a wonderful text to learn about ill treatment and other human rights conventions. I just wanted to add that as a sidebar comment. From the perspective of intentional, sorry, from the perspective of international law, both torture and ill treatment are subject to a universal absolute prohibition and cannot therefore be justified under any circumstances. For torture, moreover, there is a worldwide treaty obligation to criminalize and prosecute, which reflects a special stigma attached to the cold-blooded instrumentation. Instrument instrument I'm going to say this word, guys. Instrumentalization of pain and suffering. As I have pointed out in a dedicated report to the Human Rights Council in March 2020, AHRC, forward slash 43, forward slash 49, psychological torture differs from the physical torture, not in its purposes, but in its methods. Whereas, physical torture seeks to achieve its ends primarily through physical pain. Psychological torture does so through the direct infliction of mental suffering, that is, without using the conduit of the physical body. In both cases, however, the ultimate goal is not the body, but the mind and emotions of the victims or the intimidated third party, which are to be broken and subjected to the torturer. In the long run, psychological torture causes not only mental pain or suffering, but also measurable physical harm primarily through relentless overstimulation and destabilization of the victim's psycho-emotional balance. Strictly speaking, there is really no such thing as purely physical or purely psychological torture, and in most cases both forms of abuse are quite deliberately combined. Nevertheless, this distinction is useful in practice because physical and psychological torture methods cause different primary symptoms. The identification and documentation of which, in turn, requires different forensic examination methods. In most cases, psychological torture focuses on the coordinated interaction of four elements. Intimidation, isolation, arbitrariness, and humiliation. First, the torture victim's need for security and protection is undermined by creating and sustaining a constant threat scenario, generating a profound sense of fear and intimidation. Second. The resulting anxiety is intensified by isolating the victim from their normal environment and social world, making them totally dependent on their torturers, even for the simplest and most in intimate aspects of their daily life. Third, in order for to further destabilize the victim, normal rules of social interaction are replaced by deliberately arbitrary and confusing regimes of do's and don'ts. Decisions are no longer made on the basis of clear and coherent criteria but become increasingly erratic and unpredictable, exposing the victim to a growing sense of insecurity and helplessness. Finally, the torture victim's sense of dignity and self-esteem is eroded through humiliation, shaming, and defamation. In the case of political dissidents especially, this also aims to destroy the victim's public reputation and credibility to make their persecution 
appear justified and to render their return to the community difficult if not impossible. There could be no doubt during our visit to Belmarsh Assange exhibited the medical symptoms typical of prolonged exposure to psychological torture. Several other medical doctors had earlier come to the same conclusion when Assange was still confined at the Ecuadorian embassy. Given that pre-existing mental condition could be ruled out as the cause of these symptoms, they had to be the result of external factors having impacted him over an extended period of time. In Assange's case, these factors could be identified with a high degree of certainty and cumulatively created dynamics that can only be described as concerted and sustained campaign of public mobbing. As will be shown, Assange was deliberately demonized, humiliated, and socially isolated shortly after the groundbreaking publication of the Afghan War Diary by WikiLeaks in July of 2010. This was achieved primarily through the aggressive use by Swedish authorities of the mass media to disseminate rape allegations against Assange in conjunction with extreme prosecutorial procrastination and purposely perpetuating and instrumentalizing oh, got it. Um, these allegations for almost a decade without any prospect of judicial resolution. Assange's resulting vilification made it so easy to pile on additional slander, defaming him as a ruthless hacker, spy, and narcissist with blood on his hands. Meanwhile, in the background, the U.S. government used their shadowy grand jury system to build up the threat scenario of a political trial followed by Assange's burial alive in U.S. solitary confinement. Alarming enough for Assange to feel constantly threatened, yet secretive enough for his fears to be widely ridiculed as paranoia. In the following weeks and months, Assange gradually went from being hailed as a hero of press freedom to being despised as a tragicomic outcast, whose human rights and dignity no longer appeared to be a factor to be considered. Accordingly, his legitimate interests could now be openly trampled without risking a public outcry or any form of accountability. With a predictability reminiscent of the witch trials of the 17th century, each official act or omission of, on the part of the public authorities made unstakeab unmistakably clear that Assange could not rely on due process and would not be treated in accordance with the law in any of the involved jurisdictions. Thus, the basic elements of psychological torture were already in place. Intimidation, isolation, arbitrariness, and humiliation. But Assange was not yet completely defenseless. He still had an albeit dwindling circle of friends and supporters. He could still pursue his work and crucially at a time when all other doors had already closed against him, he still enjoyed the diplomatic protection of Ecuador, the one country that dared to step out of line. Nonetheless, Assange's situation became much more precarious when he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy in June 2012. Although he was temporarily protected from extradition to the United States, his freedom move of movement was now limited to a few square meters. Then, five years later, a, the change of government in Ecuador abruptly turned to Assange's last refuge in an inescapable trap. The embassy turned into a hostile environment marked by overregulation, increasingly uh, increasing isolation, and constant surveillance. 
Visits from friends and supporters were made increasingly difficult, and his ability to communicate with the outside world was progressively restricted, culminating in the complete suppression of his internet access and phone communication shortly after the secret U.S. indictment in March 2018. As will be shown, Assange's isolation was deliberate, purposeful, and coordinated. His world became more and more confined until he was left with virtually no protected space and was rendered completely powerless against his continued mistreatment. More imp most importantly, however, with the change of government in Quito, the threat scenario of a potential extradition to the U.S. had suddenly become very real again. This greatly increased the psychological pressure on Assange and it generated a constant state of extreme anxiety and stress. As if that were not enough, the public humiliation of Assange also intensified during the last phase at the embassy. From the dawn of his history to contemporary cancel culture, public mobbing has been very effective at destroying people's reputation, depriving them of their human dignity and excluding them from the group, often permanently. However, the methods have changed. Today, tarring and feathering has been superfluous. The exclusion and demonization is done by tweet, blog entry, or scandalous headlines on the front pages. Over the years, Assange has been subjugated to an unprecedented campaign of vilification, intimidation, humiliation, and ultimately dehumanization. This has involved not only journalists, but also current and former politicians, and even officials directly occupied with processing and adjudicating his case. The spectrum of such statements ranging from ridicule to defamation, all the way to open threats and calls for his murder. For example, on 16 August of 2012, the day Ecuador formally approves Assange's asylum request, BBC reporter Tom Phipps recommended via Twitter that the Metropolitan Police drag Assange out the embassy and shoot him in the back of the head in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Wow. And Hillary Clinton, then U.S. Secretary of State, reportedly asked during a team meeting, can't we just drone this guy? Significantly, when asked about the reported incident at a subsequent press conference, Clinton did not deny the alleged statement with the appropriate clarity, but merely claimed she did not recall making such a joke. The casual attitude with such disgraceful statements were shrugged off was not uncommon at the time. You know, this is the earmark of the Obama administration's way of doing things. We shall return to this in more detail later. In any case, no government or media organization seemed to find it necessary to intervene and stop such incendiary pronouncements. Assange had become an outlaw. It should, become, it should come as no surprise that Assange's prolonged exposure to such levels of intimidation, isolation, arbitrariness, and humiliation had caused him to experience a progressively intensifying state of mental and emotional distress, anxiety, and depression, which ended up exceeding the threshold pardon me, of severe pain or suffering associated with the torture. For it to amount to psychological torture, such suffering must be furthermore inflicted and intentionally and purposefully. While it is clear that isolated procedural mistakes or questionable judicial decisions generally cannot be equated with torture or ill-treatment, the following chapters will make just as clear that the gross arbitrariness and denial of justice experienced by Assange in all involved jurisdictions far exceed the imperfections which may occasionally arise in any due process proceeding. 
When a person's fundamental rights are being systematically violated at every stage of every proceeding in every jurisdiction, and when such arbitrariness fails to trigger any effective corrective action for more than a decade, then the presumption of good faith on the part of the authorities simply cannot be upheld. In democracies governed by the rule of law, denial of justice on this scale cannot happen by accident or negligence but only with intent. International law, intent on the part of state officials exists regardless of criminal culpability whenever it is reasonably foreseeable that their acts or omissions will in fact contribute to a human rights violation. In terms of purpose, the public mistreatment of Assange is not about forcing a confession or otherwise coercing him to cooperate but primarily serves to intimidate and deter other publishers, journalists, and whistleblowers who might be tempted to follow his example. In the absence of any evidence for a prosecutable crime, Assange's persecution also aims to punish him arbitrarily through intimidation, isolation, humiliation, and endless proceedings for having publicized the dirty secrets of the powerful the public mobbing of defenseless individuals is one of the most primitive forms of social communication. Deeply rooted in the human subconscious since the dawn of history, it is a demonstration of power that requires no explanation and generally triggers instinctive behavioral patterns of self-protection, conformity, and complicity. From the popular condemnation of Jesus Christ to the European witch trials of the 17th century and the political show trials of all dictatorships, and sham democracies in human history. Stake-sanctioned mobbing had been one of the most effective methods of controlling public opinion and silencing inconvenient dissent. When I informed Assange, when I informed Assange's legal team that in my official statements I would be likely to speak not only of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, but of psychological torture, they were initially surprised not that they disagreed with my assessment, but they had not expected me to be willing to expose myself with such an unpopular view. In light of the overwhelming hostility of public opinion, they also seemed to be worried about my reputation and reminded me that so far, no one in a position of influence who had dared speak up for Assange had escaped unharmed. Ooh. Of course, they looked at the matter primarily from the perspective of their client's interest. If I were to be shot down, Assange would lose important, an important advocate in his fight against extradition to the United States. Thus, they suggested that it might be preferable not to speak of torture, but only of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Based on years of frustrating experience, they feared that allegations of torture would not be taken seriously, and that a terminal, terminological compromise solution might be more promising than calling things by their name. It was then that I realized how fighting an uphill battle for years had worn down not only Assange, but even his lawyers. Systematic arbitrariness, rejection, and soft harassment on the part of the authorities added to constant hostility on the part of the public. The press and even personal friends and acquaintances had all contributed to what could be described as vicarious trauma. But I was under no illusions after, t uh, after ten years of arbitrariness and persecution, the involvements governments would be so swayed by terminological nuances as to suddenly comply with their human rights obligations towards Assange. If I were to retain my integrity and credibility, 
My reasoning had to be objective, coherent, and convincing. Therefore, should my investigation lead to the conclusion that Assange had been exposed to psychological torture, then it was my duty to say so. Reopening of the Swedish investigation. And I think when... Let me see how many pages I got left. I, I think we should wrap it there. We'll, we'll continue tomorrow uh, with the reopening of the Swedish investigation. I think this has gone fairly long, but it's been very informative. Um, Bloody, do you have any closing remarks before I wrap the room? It's been gone like an hour and 15 minutes. Queuing Bloody. Going yeah. once? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Things you just read is on that video. Please look at it and please read the material that you have. I agree with you. It's sad with how the way they've treated Assange. Free Assange all the way. <laughs> okay. Free Assange. Drop the charges. And, uh, and, there is more to this. There's definitely an education in, in this reading. So continue to, to attend. Uh, we will pick up where we left off. This is not a short chapter whatsoever. Um, but what we will do is we will, we will finish chapter three in our reading tomorrow and also go to chapter four as well. So thank you for attending. This has been The Unsanctioned Citizen. Um, we look forward to your attendance tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.